All right. John chapter 1. This is part 12 series, verse by verse, on the Gospel of John. And the title of this message is Christ Made Flesh. And we're concentrating on verse 14. And let's start reading in verse 11 for the scripture reading. He came into his own, and his own received him not, but as many as did receive him. He gave them authority to become the children of God to those who believe on his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but were born of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Some versions say tabernacled, but it means dwelt. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And we're not going to be able to finish this whole verse today. There's a, there's a lot there. We're going to concentrate on the first part and maybe the second part after the comma there. The last week we looked at verse 13. And uh, we were looking at the new birth and the effectual call. This week we're going to look at, I uh, want us to see what's called by theologians the doctrine of the incarnation. This, What that just simply means is God taking on flesh and making himself known as the Lord Jesus Christ, as the God-man. So the first part there, I'm not going to review. I'm going to spend two messages, two or three messages on verse 13. I'm not going to review uh, the whole thing. I think everybody was here anyway, for the most part. But in verse 14, the very first section there, and the word became flesh. That's what we want to start looking at. Now, I'm just going to be honest today. The Most of how we're going to explain what this means is by looking at other texts of Scripture. We're just going to compare Scripture with Scripture. I think if we have been following this first 12 or 13 messages in their context, we'll see how that these are connected, and we're going to bring some of those other verses up that are in the previous verses to show their connection. This same word, word here, is the Greek word logos, logos, in verse 14, and the word, capital W, it's the same word in the first couple verses there same Greek word which look at the first few verses there in the beginning was the word the word was with God and the word was God now of course in in my opinion especially in this message today the most important part of that first verse is the last part and that's what we want to connect the word was God we want to connect that with the word became flesh part so we have one person, two natures, both God and man. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And in him was life. Well, what do you expect? He's God, right? And the life was the light of men. So we've been all through that and looked at those verses, but I wanted to remind us of the fact that the word was God. Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the eternal Son of God. Second person of the Trinity. And this verse that we're looking at today is going to show his union with human flesh so that he can come down and display himself and display his father and talk about the will of the father. And so that we can eventually hear that and that be a means that we come to Christ the word. Now, some fatalists who sometimes we call hyper Calvinists. But there are fatalists that are not hypercalvists. There's people that are fatalists in general that would want to pervert our teachings, what we say. They would want to try to pit two things against each other and say, oh, okay, you're saying God's sovereignty controls all things. 
And uh, all he has to do is just say something and it's done. And he doesn't have to do it. Nope. <laughs> Where do you get that from? I mean, you hear that all the time, probably. They'll say he, he is so sovereign, he can just de decree the decree of predestination for salvation. And that's it. That's enough. Well, first of all, I'm not discounting that because that is needed. That seems to be the start of it. It's in God's eternal wise mind. He has this decree, this purpose. It's actually, we can look at all kinds of texts. It talks about how that it's in himself because he's all about doing things right and doing things in a sovereign way that he dictates how they go without counsel from man. And people like to react to that in weird ways. I remember when another workplace where I worked at, I was explaining this in great detail to a person. And usually it's people, they hear this and they just don't like it. They don't like it. And then they start acting silly. And he, he visibly, physically started acting silly. He said, oh, I'm just a robot. I'm predestined to go out and run in the traffic. And he was running like with his arms down. He ran into the wall. And I said, well, you know, some people are predestined to be fools. You know, and I guess you're just, you're acting like one. You're fitting the fit in the description of a fool, but his idea was he just didn't like a God like that that controlled all things. And then as you describe the means involved from the beginning to the end, it gets more close to their religion, and they don't even like those means because as you explain out the means, it starts ruling out their religion as being a legitimate religion. We had talked in earlier in the series, the verse-by-verse -verse series, when we talked about the fact that Christ as God created the world, we just read verse 3 there, we talked about how that God's sovereign, he predestinated the creation, so he just didn't say, okay, the creation's predestined, and then just say, oh, that's all I need. No, it says in several different texts that Christ, it's a hands-on thing. He created the world, not just by thinking it, but it says that he spoke it into existence. He being the word, specializing in speaking, Communicating, he spoke the world into existence. He created it through speaking it into existence. So this right away shows us, before we were even born, it shows us the importance of means. God likes means. He is wise, and we're, I'm not going to argue with God about using means. He knows what he's doing, and he did it. So when we talk about salvation, he not only decreed it, but Christ, as the word, was made flesh, and he came down and became the God-man, a mediator, and an actual substitute, a sacrifice, to put away the sin of his sheep. And not just that. Further, even though that was enough to secure salvation in its ground, and its basis, but that same Word was manifest through the preaching of the gospel for his sheep to hear and then follow him. We've read text after text after text of seeing in maybe two or three verses spread out where it's, it talks about the flow of history, how that God has decreed something, purposed something before time, and then Christ comes, fulfills it, and then the word is preached that manifests what had happened already. And it's all taken care of. God deals with the whole thing. Doesn't skip any means. He's predestined all the means from point A to point B. So this here, this section, this first section, is the why of the incarnation. Why did the word have to be made flesh? And that answer is tied directly to the gospel itself. Now, we are going to go through a lot of verses. 
And if you want to turn to them, you can. If I wait for you to turn to them, it's going to take a little bit longer, and I can do that because I can edit it out. It doesn't matter to me. It's important that you see these, so you can either turn or listen. Romans 8.3. Romans 8.3 says, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. Now, we know all about the law. You know, in Galatians, those false prophets tried to slip the law in to the gospel and add it to the gospel. And Paul just quoted the Old Testament, says, you know, for the deeds of the law, no man can be justified in your sight. And um, he just rolled out some logical things like, do you hear what the law says? I don't think you're hearing what the law says. You, In other words, you can't keep it. You don't understand the astringent, inflexible nature of the law. You're just not hearing it. Because your flesh is weak. You not only can't keep the law, you can't even hear about not keeping the law. The natural man is not subject to the law of God. Remember? The same chapter here, I think it's in verse 6, says that. But verse 3 it goes on the second part. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. This is the incarnation. That's our subject. And for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. So in a gospel context, here's the why of the incarnation. He had to come down because our flesh was weak. We couldn't do the law. He came down in his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to condemn Sin in the flesh. He took on the curse of the law. That's, a, that's some other language that we see in the scripture. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 13. 13 through 15. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off are made near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. He making us both one. Now this is talking about the Jews and Gentiles. How that in times past the Gentiles were far off and the Jews had all these different advantages of the ordinances and different things like this and the, the commands and the, the word of God to read. So these people which were not his people, the Gentiles, as they're prophesied and to eventually come in and the new covenant times and be believing in the gospel. He's talking about bringing these two together, these two flocks, Jew and Gentile, into one flock to be, the scripture says, one man. It's the church. Says, uh, and he has broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having, verse 15, abolished in his flesh, there you go, in his flesh, the enmity, the law of the commandments contained in the ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, making peace between them. So he not only as a mediator made peace between uh, the elect and God, but he's made peace between these two types of people, the Jews and the Gentiles. But he did it, verse 15, in his flesh. Uh, he, in other words, he had to have a body to be a sacrifice. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 21. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now... He has reconciled, how did he do that? In the body of his flesh through death. And what did that do? To present you holy and without blemish and without charge in his sight. His death was effectual for the ones that he died for. And he did it in the body of his flesh through death. 
Hebrews chapter 2. The second part of our text, it says, And the Word was made flesh, the Word became flesh. And the second part is, It tabernacled among us. You know, I, I just read some verses that explain why he had to become flesh. It had to do with his death, the sacrifice. And it's really a chore sometimes to arrange verses to stick with certain subjects because after a while they start feathering out into multiple subjects and they're hard to arrange. You start overlapping. It's just the nature of the redundancy of the truth and the preponderance of evidence of multiple things in verses. But uh, the tabernacle among us part is what I want to start looking at, how that he came down and he, he dealt with people. He was among people for certain reasons. Now, the main thing was his death. We had looked at that. Hebrews 2, verse 10. I'm going to read through verse 18. For it became him, speaking of Christ, for whom are all things and by whom are all things. Let's just stop right there. Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 says that all things were created by him and for him. That's what this is saying again. That it says for whom, speaking of Christ, are all things. All things are for him. Do you catch that? If you read through this fast, you don't catch it. And by whom are all things. He created all things. This is harmonious with Colossians 1.16. All things were made by him and for him. In bringing many sons unto glory to perfect the captain of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will declare your name to my brothers in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you again. I will put my trust in him. And again, behold me and the children whom God has given me. So these are quotes from the Old Testament. Verse 14. Since then the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he might destroy him who had power of death, that is the devil. So here you see clear explanations of the reason why Christ came down and had to take on a body. He did it knowingly, willingly. And verse 15, it says, And deliver those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. It didn't say that the people that he died for, their whole life they had free will. This says quite the opposite. They were subject to bondage. We had read, in verse 14 at the end, it talks about the devil. We had read, and I'm wanting to say it's Second uh, Timothy 2, 24 through 26. I'm thinking that's where it's at. It talked about how that teachers must be patient and loving and apt to teach. And teaching these people that oppose themselves, whom the devil takes captive at his own will. Remember reading that? Not too long ago. We've read it a hundred times here. But let's say the same thing said throughout their whole lifetime of subject to bondage. Verse 16, for truly he did not take on the nature of angels. He took hold of the seed of Abraham. In other words, he took on human flesh. Remember that was the promise in connection with the covenant with Abraham. He said, 
He's talking about the seed. He's talking about Christ. Verse 17. Therefore, in all things, it behooved him to be made like unto his brothers. That's his sheep, whether they're male or female. That he might be merciful and a faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God to make propitiation. That means the satisfaction of law and justice. A sacrifice that, that satisfies God's law and justice. That's what propitiation is. To make propitiation for the sins of his people. And he did that. For in that he himself has suffered, having been tempted, he is able to rescue those who are being tempted. He rescued them by his propitiation. That's how he did that. Because some of his people, I'm going to say some, I'm going to say all, fall for temptations and end up sinning. Therefore, this is what he died for. He is the propitiation for the sins of his people. So this text here talks about how that he's made like unto his brothers, unto the ones he's saving. He's made just like them as far as a body's concerned but without the sin. And we'll be getting into the differences between his body and our body in reference to sin. This action took humility on Christ's part. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Very familiar text when we're talking about humility. Philippians chapter 2, start reading in verse 5. And this here it shows Christ is the example of humility. And this shows the peak and pinnacle of humility and that we are to look to him and imitate his humility by his service, even unto death. Verse 5. For let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon himself the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. So Christ as the eternal Son of God, condescended down from the throne of God. And him, again, being God, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, he temporarily made himself outwardly to appear like he was not God to people. This is part of his humility. There are all kind of earthly examples you could give that don't come close to this. Imagine yourself uh, working hard to... This is not going to come close, I'm telling you. Working hard to, say, be a movie star. And finally, boom, you're in this movie and you're a star. It's your first night out to the public. Can you imagine saying, I'm not. I'm going to pretend like I'm somebody else. I'm going to put a mask on. You're not going to do that. You're going to say, finally, I'm the star. And you're waiting for the red carpet to roll out so that they can honor you. You've worked this hard to be the star. And this is your glory. See, this is God in the flesh. And he's hiding himself in a certain degree. He said that in Isaiah says that he, he showed no outward beauty that we may behold him and say, you're beautiful. You're God. You couldn't tell that he was God by looking at him. He's common in his looks. Do you see the suppression, self-suppression in the purpose and plan of humbling himself, this humility he went through to empty himself of his visual things that would show him as God? <laughs> this is so opposed to human flesh, human fleshly ideas. At least in my mind, it is because uh, we are proud as sinful creatures. So he made himself of no reputation. You see, 
he had the reputation of being God because he was God. And he says, you know, I'm going to put that aside temporarily. I'm going to come down here and do this work. I'm not going to show myself to everybody openly, visibly, where they look at me and say, that's God. Now, we know he did certain things. He did miracles. He did this, that, and the other. And he said certain things that indicated only to some people that, yeah, this is him. This is the one. But not to everybody. And part of God's glory, we've seen throughout the scripture, part of his glory is hiding himself. This is part of his glory. So he decides when and where and how and all that. Verse 8. And being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Not just like he died of old age and had a heart attack and fell asleep and died. No. Even the death of the cross. The worst death anybody could, could die. Therefore, verse 9, because of that, because of his humility, he went through that. And what did he earn from that? God highly exalted him and has given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, of heavenly ones, of earthly ones, and the ones under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. It's a big deal, in other words. <laughs> it's the biggest of deals. So, again, when we try to communicate these things, I mean, we can study and study and study, and we can see them more clear, but there's a sense in which we always, as Paul said, always see through a glass darkly. We can't see these things perfectly. We can learn. We can learn a lot. And there's even now, there's a lot to learn. And when we look back, maybe a couple of years from now, if we live that long, we can look back and say, man, I learned a lot since uh, March 19th of 2017. But trying to express these ideas sometimes, I fumble. I, I come up with some good examples in my mind, and I know what I'm saying, and I know how it relates to me, but I don't know what's in your guys' heads about some of these things. But when God has a plan, and he's going to execute a plan, I, I was thinking this past week about how that um, some of the head honchos at work, we got an email and said some of these men are going to be on the shop floor. So what we got to do? We got to clean up. First of all, we're supposed to clean up anyway. But hey, it's the head people coming out. So therefore, we want everything, again, like red carpet rolled out. Here they come. And uh, same idea. If, there, if there's an issue, like there's a, there's a hard issue, and it's not being fixed, the people that are like below, they don't fix it. The next people down don't fix it. The next people down don't fix it. So all of a sudden, oh, we got to have a meeting. Who's going to be there? The owner's going to be there. You know what I mean? You better come. You better have some answers or you're probably going to be gone. Right? This is the attitude that I'm talking about. Here, God has this eternal plan. And it's not like he says, well, I'm going to fix this plan and walk away. And it's, no. He says, I'm going to fix this plan. He sends his best, his right-hand man, by the way. That's not just being smart aleck, he's at the right hand of the throne of God. That's his strong arm. He sends Christ down, his own beloved son. And hands on, this Christ, what he does, I'm going to suppress just for a little while, temporarily, my deity so people can't see it. And I'm going to come down and I'm going to do a hands-on thing where I'm going to save my people effectually forever by dying for them. He has to come down. It's not just God is so sovereign he can say, you're saved. No. It took 
God coming down and dying in the flesh. That's how serious the problem was. <laughs> that's how serious it was. And that's how only, you know, and not just anybody. He didn't send an angel down. It, it said he didn't come down. It's not like he surveyed this thing. Okay, now who can I get? Who can I get? Let's take a survey. This may take a couple million years. But let's take a survey. Let's see if we can find it. No, in his infinite wisdom, Christ is the only qualified one. And he came and he perfectly put away sin by becoming himself a propitiation, the satisfaction of God's law. Only the God-man could satisfy God by who he was and what he did. And everybody for whom he did it for are going to be set free. So this, what I'm getting at, I, want to, I just want us to just realize that this is a mission. This is a mission that had to be, that had to be followed through for it to work in the end to be a result. It's a hands-on mission for God. And Christ willingly, voluntarily did it, not just to save his people, but to glorify his Father. It just said, we just read that to the glory of the Father that he did these things. The sacrifice of Christ was, number one, Godward, to satisfy God. The result of it was the salvation of his people. Now, if you don't believe in a particular, limited, effectual, successful, finished redemption, you will not understand that. If you believe Christ just died for everybody and the majority of who he died for went to hell, the glory of the Father, that's a shame. That's a joke. That's a different Christ. He was propitiation for his people. He was actually, and if words mean anything, propitiation means satisfaction of law and justice. So if he's satisfaction for his people, law and justice, his people get up in judgment, and God says, you are condemned, and those for whom he died for went to hell. Propitiation can't mean propitiation. Imputation can't mean imputation. If the sins of God's people were charged to Christ, if, if something went wrong, Christ died to satisfy for those sins, something's wrong with God's justice. You've got double jeopardy going on. You've got God sending people to hell for whom Christ already paid the price of their hell. That's blasphemous. So you have to understand this in a redemption that's particular for God's sheep. So God, he followed through. The decree takes him where? Well, it comes down to, to what the problem is, to come down to take care of business, to be a substitute for his people while he was at it. Not just he stood in for his people. The work was not just for his people. We talked about it's for God first, but the work is for his people. There has to be a work in his people. So as he did a work for his people to the Father, he merited and earned spiritual blessings and gifts so that they can be worked in his people. That's faith, repentance, all these different things he earned by his work. Even the ministry of the church, everything that had to do with all spiritual blessings, the scripture says, uses that phrase three or four times, all spiritual blessings in Christ. That's the work of God in his people. Because of the ground, the work that was already done of Christ for his people. The Spirit, and here's an example, uh, Romans 8.10. The Spirit is life because of righteousness. The Holy Spirit gives us life, imparts to us spiritual life. We just looked at last week, verse 13, which we're born of God. 
And that was done on the basis of Christ coming and dying and establishing righteousness. Spirit is life because of righteousness. So that is what he earned for his people to work in them. And what does our context show us? Verse 10 of John 1. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, his own received him not, but as many as received him. Here we start talking about that work in people. Because it was not in people to begin with. We just saw the first two verses before that. came to his own, his own received him not. Nobody in the world knew him. So they have to know him to come to him. So as many as received him, he gave him authority to become children of God. Verse 12, to those who believe on his name. And how did that happen? Something had to precede that. Regeneration or the new birth had to precede that. Who were born, not of blood, not of the will of flesh, not of the will of man, but were born of God. So that was the spiritual gifts that Christ merited while he was on earth, primarily being sacrificed and being a propitiation for sins of his people. Let's go to 1 John. I think we looked at this text early on in our series, just comparing some of the language to some of the verses that we were looking at. 1 John 1.1, same author. That which was from the beginning... Now, what is our topic today? We're talking about Christ made flesh. We're talking about him in a body, right? That which was from the beginning, which we have heard. Some of these people were alive and hung out with Christ, right? This author was. Which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. It's talking about Christ. They were, they were around him. This was, of course, the apostle John writing this that hung out with Christ and walked with him and talked with him for the ministry last three years of Christ's life. Verse 2, 4, the life was revealed and we have seen it and we bear witness and show to you the everlasting life who was with the Father and was revealed to us. And that's what that's what he does. That's his job as the word to reveal both himself and the Father. He does that through being the Word. He is the prophet. David read it in Hebrews 1, how that in, in times past he spoke through the prophets, but in this latter time he's speaking through his Son, the eternal Word of God. He's finally coming down in clarity and not only speaks, but displays. This is who God is. Watch this. He's going to kill me, the God-man. I mean, that's some communication right there. So there's a revelation spoken about there in verse 2, revealing these things. Again, it's not just the decree and stop. There's a revelation involved, the means. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we declare unto you. So they're passing it on. These things that have I've just told you that have happened, we're going to turn right around. We're going to tell you about it, the next generation, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So you keep seeing verses over and over and over again that it's not only planned and Christ has to come down and do it. And then after it's done, it's explained out how it was done. And this is part of the means of we hear that word, that truth, and that we, through the means of that truth, we come to Christ. And we have fellowship. 
with not only Christ, but with the Father, because he's the mediator between us and the Father. Now, I'm going to start getting into just a little bit here, and we're going to run out of time. There's two deadly errors associated with this subject. We start looking at this week and try to get to some more of it next week. One error is, historically, some people have said that Christ didn't have a body. These people were called Gnostics. They looked at, uh, philosophically, they thought that evil was in things. So therefore, uh, if you've got this body, then that the body itself, in and of itself, the material body is evil. And this, this idea is passed on really in religion. You can look at people who thinks, okay, well, I'm going to get in a, what do you call it? What, what do Catholics, is it a monastery? Do they go away? Is that what that's called? I almost get that mixed up with mausoleum. But it's almost the same thing. <laughs> but uh, they'll remove themselves from society and they think, I'm getting away from things. If I can just get in a room away from things, I'm getting away from evil. But what they've done is they've brought the evil with them. Their wicked mind. <laughs> so it is the thoughts of the heart are wicked. It's not in things. A bottle of alcohol sitting there, a bottle of whiskey is not evil in and of itself. A gun sitting there, is, it's not going to jump up and shoot somebody. It's the person's evil intentions that if you would take that gun and murder somebody, that same gun might protect somebody from being murdered. So that the things are not evil. And therefore, this idea of these Gnostics philosophically, and probably, I don't know enough about the history of philosophy, but I would say this baloney is woven into a lot of the history of philosophy. And it's come down to us, and a lot of it we don't even know how it affects us in our life. That was the first deadly error. And it's mentioned, and we'll go to the text just here in a second. Let me mention the second one, and we'll go to the text. The second would be, no deity, the fact that Christ is not God. So first they would say, God is not man. The second would be, man is not God. We know with Christ, he's the God-man. He's both. Let's go real quick to First uh, John 4. And we'll finish up looking at First uh, John 4, and then we're going to go to Second John and close, close it out. First John 4, 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. But try or test the spirits to see if they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone into the world. By this, you know, the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses, and the word confess we know means to say the same word about or to agree with. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come into the flesh is not of God. This is the Antichrist you heard is coming and even now is already in the world. So here John, the Apostle John, is talking about the spirit of Antichrist that would cause people's minds to not believe this doctrine that we're talking about. And this is not the only doctrine that... I don't want us to read this and think, well, this is, as long as people know this doctrine of the Incarnation, they're okay. No other, it doesn't matter, the other doctors, doesn't matter if you screw them up or not. That's not what this is saying. Not at all. Not at all. So, in other words, 
I talked about two errors. One saying that, that God did not come into a body. The other error says that the one that came with a body is not God. So what if you say here, okay, let's look at verse what verse 2 says here. We're going to judge people saved because they say that Jesus came in the flesh. And that's all you need to know. But then they turn around and say, Jesus is not God. Uh, <laughs> you can't do that. This verse doesn't go out of the way and mention that those that believe that Jesus is not God are not of God. There's all kind of other texts in the scripture that say that, though. So what I'm saying is, let's not limit this. Let's go. To, I'll show you. I'll show you why. Second John. Let's go to Second John, the next book over. This is where we're getting ready to see just just briefly. We're not spending too much time. We start to get a glimpse of the various warnings in Scripture where it talks about another Jesus, another gospel, which is driven by another spirit. Second John one seven, same language as First John. For many deceivers are entered into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and the Antichrist. Look to yourselves so that you may not lose those things which we worked out. He said, I've, t I've told you a bunch of doctrine here. Don't separate and disjoint these things and only just like get a couple of them. Gather up the loins of your mind, all this doctrine that I've told you, keep it in one unit because it's important. You're going you're gonna to slip if you don't keep the whole picture in mind. Kind of what he's getting at. But that we may receive the full reward. Everyone transgressing and not abiding in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. Now here's my point in conclusion of, of kind of what I just said in the last couple of minutes. The doctrine of Christ is not limited to Christ coming in the flesh. It's more than that. I just don't want us to look at these texts here and think that's all that it's talking about. I mean, that's an insult to Christ. What's the very last verse of the very last chapter of John say? If everything was written about Christ, it could have been written. The world could not contain the books. Christ is a broad subject. And when we're talking about the gospel and who Christ was and how he came to save sinners, the doctrine of Christ is pretty much the gospel. And the gospel is more than Christ came in flesh. It goes on, it says, He who abides in the doctrine of Christ, he has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, don't receive him to your house and don't speak a greeting, anything positive to him. Don't say, God bless you, brother. For he who speaks a greeting to him is partaker in his evil deeds. So anybody that has a false gospel, don't promote him in their religion. Because if you do, what are you implying or actually doing? You're partaker in their evil deeds of transgressing the doctrine of Christ. Right? So that's where compromise leads, leads to right there. So we'll try to pick up there next week and maybe kind of review what I had just said toward the tail end there and uh, add some more to it so it'll make more sense, hopefully. Got any questions before we take the Lord's Supper? And, I, and I'm hoping this blends well with the elements here of the Lord's Supper. Yeah. I mean, obviously, a lot of things you said were otherworldly. And we are, we live in this world, we have a spirit, which is not of the world. 
But that's why I really believe that so so much is when it talks about the fact that we're without the Spirit, without faith, it's impossible to please God because it's otherworldly. So you know, that's the only way you can really see that is that is that we have a Spirit, He's given it to us, and we must learn what that entails. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I can't say with strange person it's kind of different because I mean I can't sit here. Say where everybody is, but I'm just saying that without faith, it's impossible. <laughs> yeah, and without faith, and without life to be given faith, we have to be born of God and given eyes to see. And of course, how what's a blind person? And how are they going to describe something they can't see it? And I'm not going to make fun of a blind person, you know, because I used to be blind. Uh, let's turn to First Corinthians chapter 11. I want to read something here in connection with the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> 